Welcome to another episode of the Bay Earth Peak Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Raman. On the podcast today, welcome back, Landa. Repeat guest, repeat yeah, appearance. Totally. Well, I'm thrilled you asked me again. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm thrilled you came back. Um, there's just there's just so much you can talk about with sex. And as I've seen sort of with the uh, um, you know, the the ABA kind of sig special interest group you you folks have, which have you kind of changed the name of that to something else, I think, maybe? Yeah. Well, we yeah, I, I can tell you sort of about that 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 change. Um so the special interest group was previously affiliated with ABA International. And then we decided to uh, stop that affiliation um, just because the values of our SIG and the values that ABAI was sort of uh, showing through their action or lack of action, particularly around uh, contingent electric skin shock and the position statements um, that were um, delayed in in coming and then pretty weak when they when they did come. We just felt that. yeah, our mission was different and and there wasn't really a lot of honestly value added that being a, associated with um, ABAI was giving us. Um, I, I mean, I guess the platform mm-hmm. to start. Um, but so we're shifting um, sort of slowly to just being more of like a moderated face living kind of on Facebook as a group, sort of similar to the PFA SBT Hanley my way program, mm. <laughs> the group that I, I know a lot of people in, in the world of behavior analysis are part of that right. group online. So sort of using that as like a, a vague model to sort of structure, but yeah, so folks can still find the special mm-hmm. interest group. Um, I was, I guess like formerly the president, but we're sort of shifting it to be sort of like moderators. So now I will be just like one of the, the moderators, but sort of like leading that, um, action and, and change it's slow going because that is a, just a bunch of folks that yeah, yeah. work in the space that are um doing you know it as just like a volunteer thing on the side because we think it's it's important and um as you know and we sort of talked about last time i was on there's very few of us doing work in this space of like the intersections of aba and, and sexuality so those of us who do the work and then will be part of the sig leadership um are quite busy so mm-hmm. We still called it the Sexual yeah, Behavior no, Special Interest Group. Oh, cool. So is it called something different um, than if folks are looking sexual for? Sexual Behavior, yeah, Special Interest Group on on Facebook. Um, okay. ABAI doesn't own Special Interest Group. Like we have a special interest and it's sex. So that's where, yeah, yeah, and we're a group. So that's right. that's what we're doing. And there's other, you know, organizations that we're and not we're, affiliated we with that yeah. have special interest groups, right? Like that's a name that lots of places own. So we didn't feel like we owed it to ABAI to take that away or, or change Mm. that. Um, so yeah, we're a group that exists on Facebook that's interested in sexual behavior. So find us there. Yeah. Right on, right on. Well, before I get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast for the territories of the Comox, Clehus, Homoko, and Kalaman First Nations, uh, part of the larger Coast Salish communities go kind of from the top of BC down to somewhere in Washington. Thought they might go as far as Oregon, but I was talking to someone in Oregon and they said, no, we don't have Coast Salish in Oregon. So I was like, okay, learn something new every day. Um, yeah. yeah. But uh, you're grateful to be Can here. I say where I'm joining from? Absolutely, please. Yeah. Uh, so I'm joining from the territory of the Lekwungen speaking people, which 
which is now called the Esquimalt and Songhees First Nations, which is in what we refer to as Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. So also on an island, you're on an island, I'm on an island. My island's a bit bigger than yours. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We're going to continue our conversation about uh, sexuality. Uh, I've been... I kind of reached out to you um, a while back just because I had a couple of questions around, you know, menstruation and menstrual care. And also, you know, and we, we, I don't, maybe we could touch on this a bit today too, you know, also kind of, you know, personal hygiene, different things for men as well. I feel like there's, um, um, you know, a lot of, assumption there's a lot of assumptions made so i i worked at, folks know i kind of work in the adult space the group home space and uh uh it, it it's a struggling area to be in uh when it comes to sexuality generally speaking you know um you know and again i'm not speaking to individual staff or group homes but you know the general kind of theme in community living is that you know adults with developmental disabilities um do not not only do not engage in sexual activity, but shouldn't engage in sexual activity, or it's, you know, it's even, it's unethical for them to engage in uh, in sexual mm-hmm. activity. And while I certainly agree, it's unethical for the staff to engage in sexual activity with their, their residents and, and their programs. And, and, you know, and there probably is a conversation around sort of, um, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know what the word is, but you know, maybe folks with and without developmental disabilities, um, you know, having relationships. But even there, that's not necessarily mm. a no-no either, depending on kind of what's going on. I think it's all mm-hmm. it really comes down to things like consent and you know those sorts of pieces more than anything. Uh, but generally speaking, in my experience working in group homes, um, you know, sexual activity was limited to um, masturbation sometimes mm-hmm. um 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 and, and you know that'd be about it but also you know there's something i see a lot in sort of you know kind of behavior support plans especially kind of ones that maybe use that kind of classic sort of o'neill and al um sort of categories setting events any student's behaviors consequences you'll often see you know, menstruation or PMS or something like that written as a setting event, um, um, you know, typically for, you know, uh, uh, folks that identify with with those genders and whatnot. Um, but then beyond sort of, you know, the, t- the, 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 the time that the folks, the, the, the client might have their period, you know, and acknowledging that, you know, maybe every every month or every whatever, obviously it depends on each individual, but every every sort of period in that cycle, um, the, the advice is just to sort of you know, lower demands during during period, uh, you know, mm. during, during timeline of period and then go back to normal. But there's no real other sorts of things, you know, that are that I ever sort of see in plans unless there's sort of a, an obvious, you know, you know, um, um, you know problem that visual problem you know of you know blood everywhere or mm-hmm. something like something to that effect mm-hmm. or you know or some sort of you know um, um personal care thing that's resulting in problems and then, then they may be they address it at that point um and so i was sort of wondering you know well 
what should what should folks do? You know, when when uh, you know when 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 looking at those sorts of things, uh, because I think the other piece is it's often difficult for you know for programs that maybe want to actually you know do something about this stuff. It's difficult for them to find folks to get help with, or if they can find folks like yourself. You know, there's no there's no money to pay for folks like yourself to get you know support <laughs> apparently, mm-hmm. um, and so you know they mm. end up just not doing anything about it. And so I, I'd really like to talk today about kind of you know some of those pieces, just you know certainly from the you know, just a, you know medical and whatever you know other perspectives, but also kind of dispel some myths because I think um, you know uh, yeah, there you know I, th- I think it's a lot of I think there's just a a crap load of bias here. Um, you know, yeah. on our on our part that we're imposing on on these folks, um, uh, and we're really you know, you know, uh, uh, destroying their quality of life by not allowing or teaching mm-hmm. or or doing those things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to talk about all of that. I mean the the menstrual, yeah, like the menstrual care piece, which, you know, like you were saying, like reaching out for consultation, which I love the modeling of reaching out for consultation Mm. when you're not sure what to do or what the, what the issues are. Um, I mean, I think there's definitely lots of things that people, I think make assumptions about. So it, it might be, yes, that, that, period pain, you know, is causing some level of distress and that's contributing to, you know, whatever named sort of like interfering or distressing behavior for that person. And then, um, but, and I think that that's, that's super valid. I would also say that just, you know, society wide, we have a bit of like a problem with dismissing how intense that can be for people in terms of menstrual pain and also not acknowledging that some people can have things like endometriosis, which is a pretty debilitating, like chronic health um, condition that people Mm. have. And, and that's dismissed a lot from people who have really good self-advocacy skills have, you know, strong, um, ability to kind of navigate the medical system. But then if you have somebody who has, you know, not as strong self-advocacy skills across all of their life or, um, doesn't have the ability to effectively communicate, right? Like somebody could be, have endometriosis, be suffering from a significant amount of pain, um, you know, constantly or, or certainly around times of, of menstruation for sure. Um, and then not be able to sort of tell anybody and then everybody around them, you know, in a care setting or, or what have you is thinking like, oh, that's just period. It's just bad period pain, which is if you ask anybody with endometriosis, they'll say like, that's what they get. Like, oh, it's just really bad period pain. It's like, no, there's actually like tissue growing in my like abdominal cavity essentially. So it's basically when like, like, uh, endometrium which is part of sort of like the reproductive structure of the uterus grows outside of the uterus as opposed to inside and so Mm. it can create really painful um just pain generally and particularly like pelvic pain and lower abdominal pain and people have have um have to have surgery to sort of like try to remove some of that tissue and remediate some of that pain that can be hard for people to access so you know that that is i'd have to look up the statistics i I'm sorry to say, I don't know off the top of my head, the amount of people that have endometriosis, Mm -hmm. but I also think the statistics like anything medical would probably not be accurate because it's dismissed um, out of hand. So I think those are the kinds of things where we really need to 
we need to be tr- thinking critically about how we're evaluating some of those setting events and that like, yes, it could be period pain, but could this be something where this person might need even more medical intervention? Or like mm-hmm. you're saying, it's just put on a plan is like, oh, we recognize that this is something that happens, but we're not doing anything to try to remediate this for this person, which is going to impact their quality of life. Right. So are we going to try to get this person muscle relaxants that they can take at that, you know, when they're um, having their period, there's mm. premenstrual dysphoric disorder that people can have. Like there's, there's some real medical things that can happen that can be kind of challenging. Um, and managing periods and cycles and those sorts of things is, um, you know, it's a bit of like a tricky spot, I think, also with people with disabilities, because there's a, a history of, um, you know, in the eugenics movement, certainly of people mm. being sterilized, whether yes. that's, you know, full hysterectomies and like removal of uteruses. The, the reason for that was to prevent them from having children. But the side hard air quotes benefit of that was also that no one had to manage their menstrual cycle anymore. Um, people are often put on medications that will stop them from having a menstrual cycle. Um, but that also stops them from the, what's kind of doctors will sometimes now call them two things. They'll call that bleed control and mm. birth control, mm. which is basically what we would know as like contraception. But, um, a lot of people do take it to regulate their menstrual cycle, yep. but they also know that that means that they can't get pregnant, but lots of people with disabilities are placed on medications or have a procedure or something like that done then they don't understand they're not given the information that that also means that they couldn't get pregnant. So I think Mm. we, you know, we need to just be thinking critically about what information we're giving to people. Um, But menstrual management is hard, like, you know, TMI, but like as a person who had really severe menstrual cramps, like I decided to get like a long lasting birth control of a uh, IUD or an intrauterine device that releases a small amount of hormones so that I didn't have to manage the, those symptoms. And I didn't have to manage a period <laughs> as someone who also like teaches, tries to teach like period positivity. It's kind of hard. Cause I'm just like, but it's awful <laughs> or it can be awful. Right. So it's a fine, it's a fine balance. So, um, but I think that if we're putting somebody on a medication and to stop or regulate their period, and that also stops them from getting pregnant, they should be given that information Mm. um, for sure. And I think we like, we've also come a long way in terms of menstrual management. You know, if I think back to, um, you know, even when like my, my mom, I'm 40. When my mom was, was younger and got her period, she was still attaching a menstrual pad to her underwear with like a belt and like, and that wow. those were the options. And now there's like, you know, the sticky backing and you put it on, um, underwear, but there's also period underwear where right. people can just like, people can self-manage periods now a lot easier. Like, you know, if you don't have the fine motor skills to mm. change a pad, like that can be a real, like it's a card task. I have like task analyses that I've done for that self shameless plug on my website. I've got resources for purchase. That's like a video model of changing a pad and also like a visual support for changing a pad. Um, and, and then a support that's also like, do you need to change this pad? Yes or no, because Mm. I've had some clients or consulted with some clients that they were, they got the message, like if there's blood on the pad, then you change it. But, Mm. and so they were changing their pad. If there was even like a tiny bit of blood on the pad and they were going through like packages of pads super and they're expensive because we yep. still we still have to we pay still for them pay for these things, um, yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. So I've got those, but you can get period underwear. So then that doesn't matter. You just change them at the end of the day, like you would any other underwear. I've worked with some clients that they don't, they've never been able to wear underwear for sensory reasons. And now they have period leggings. So like you don't, or shorts, so you don't even have to wear underwear. So there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely my favorite Canadian company for period products is called period aisle. Shout out to period aisle. Um, and so they're, um, they're a great place to buy some of those things. So yeah, like it's menstrual management, isn't as big of a deal as it used to be, but it also does intersect with like reproductive justice issues, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human expressions gives black and brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for black and brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is menstruation. Menstruation. So there's that information for you. <laughs> That's that, that alone is like just so much stuff because I think, you know, I, I also think about sort of the idea that, you know, there's a lot of folks that, that work in these programs that are often folks that have been doing this for decades, you know, and so they wouldn't even be aware of some of these products and often they're men, you know, and so, you know, uh, you've got a bunch of men working in a group home with a, with a woman and, uh, you know, already there's a lot of concern, like just in terms of, you know, personal care and hygiene and whatnot and providing those supports and, uh, and let alone sort of, you know, um, <laughs> having, having sort of the, you know, having it to sort of push aside sort of this, you know, idea that, oh, that's weird. I shouldn't be dealing with this, you know, mm-hmm. um, only, mm-hmm. only a woman should be supporting. I mean, and on some level, I think that's true. You know, I mean, obviously there, there's dignity and, 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 you know, risk of abuse and all these sorts of things. We don't necessarily want men necessarily, you know, helping women, uh, you know, change things. But if, mm-hmm. um, but if, but, but now that there's actually options, like if there was a context where it was all men, you could just get them underwear, special okay. underwear. And then they, you know, it's just change your underwear and you don't have to sort of, you know, do anything. So I don't think folks even mm-hmm. realize sort of the technology has improved so much in sort of the last, you know, 10, 20 years, as far as um, ways to kind of deal with those things. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that there's like, you know, we're obviously talking about, or we're kind of focusing, thinking about teaching adults and, and I, um, which, you know, obviously that that's a population that needs support, um, services for sure. But I do think that there's, you know, there's lots of things that are really, and this is kind of like my bit of my mission lately, because I've just recognized the more that I do this work, the more that like, there's some skills that we could teach earlier Mm. if possible that, that are related to sexual health that you don't really realize. So like labeling, you know, body sensations like pain, you Mm. know, or this kind of idea like of interoception and those sorts of things is something that like, 
yeah, if you're having really bad menstrual pain and you can't communicate that, but you also can't communicate any other kind of pain, right? Yes. So you, you can't, you can't label when you have a headache, you can't label when you have a, a earache or a stomach ache or a vulva pain or anal pain or, or menstrual pain, right? So working on like developing some of that, like pain language early, recognizing that some folks that we work with are going to have like different, um, experiences of pain because of just yep. different ways of sensory experiences in the world and stuff. So, um, you know, if we're kind of going to think about like, what are takeaways for folks that are maybe listening that don't work with adults and they're thinking like, okay, that this conversation is maybe not needed that like, if you're teaching kids to label their internal body sensations when they're younger, if you have a client that menstruates, that's going to be helpful for them. Um, and add that to like a place where that pain could be right. We tend to teach head, stomach, head and stomach, I think are the big ones, but sort of like, you know, lower belly or like, you know, and you can label like uterus pain, um, or lower belly pain would be another good one to teach people that, you know, have the body parts that are going to be menstruating at some point. Um, Because people, because people will, and most doctors won't prescribe um, any sort of like bleed control medication to people until they've kind of had a a cycle for a while. Um, So I've, I mean, I'm not a medical professional, so seek consultation, obviously, but I've definitely had some clients that are, you know, eight, nine, 10, and families are sort of saying like, well, could we put them on birth control now to stop them from having a period? We don't think that they know how to manage it or can manage it. Um, but the, to the best of my knowledge, most doctors require like a cycle to have started and sort of like regulated it's become regular in some way before mm. they'll prescribe those sorts of medications that could change and shift as like the dosages of hormones in those medications becomes less and less over time. Like the, what hormonal birth control looks like now is a lot different than what it looked like. And will and will like doctors ago. prescribe that sort of thing just because sort of someone says that I'm I'm I, they don't know they won't know how to do personal care, so we'll you know what I mean. Um, I mean they could for sure. I don't know if like they don't know how. Um, and every or doctor's different, them, right? You know? Yeah, we yeah. I mean, I, I you know sadly or I don't know. I think doctors a lot of the times prescribe things that could be managed behaviorally, right? So it could probably fit into that category, Yeah, yeah, yeah. which, and like, sometimes it, you know, and I'm not, I'm open to those conversations of talking about like, if this medication is prescribed, does that give us a chance to do some teaching and work on something behaviorally? And then the, what's the plan to have them come off that medication once that's done if needed, but doctors will certainly prescribe like birth control just as period management, right? Like mm. that's what I did. I don't want to have a period. I don't want to have kids either, but I, I don't want to have a period. And so my doctor was like, yeah, so you can just get this kind of birth control that will probably stop your period. So th- right. that is a reason that they prescribe it. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's, it's things like period pain, like endometriosis probably, you know, has, you know, I know you don't have the stats in front of you, but it's, it's probably sort of less common. I mean, it's, it's definitely a thing, um, but like just sort of regular, if, 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 if it's, is such a thing, regular kind of period pain, is that something that most folks have that, you know, would have a period or. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I would say it's, it's going to be pretty rare that you're going to have somebody who doesn't have some kind of symptomology when they're, when they're menstruating. Mm. Um, cramping yes but like there's other things that people like lots of people will have diarrhea when they mm. are menstruating as well a lot because it's kind of like it's like a smooth muscle sort of 
thing that's happening in the body, right? So menstruation is essentially the lining of the uterus shedding. And so the cramps are the uterus expelling that tissue, basically. Right. It looks like blood, but it's blood and some other stuff. Um, and so the smooth muscle that controls um bowel movements as well can be impacted and people are can be more likely to have like diarrhea and at that mm. time as well. So there might be like other <laughs> needs in terms of like self-care and bathrooming skills that people might, you know, need more kind of help with. I also yeah. have a visual support. I don't think it's on my, it's don't think it's on my, um, my, yes, it is. It's on my website. I bet like, are you done? Are you done wiping or do you need to keep wiping with like toilet paper so mm. that people can see like, you know, if it's, if you can still see stool on the toilet paper, then you then you can keep wiping. And if you don't see any, or if it's like just a tiny bit, then you can also stop wiping because mm -hmm. I, and that most of the visuals that I have for sale have like come about because I had a client or a consultation that like needed a thing. So this yep. consultation was a client that was like over wiping. Um, and so their, their anus was getting irritated and then they were yes. putting their hands down their pants and itching. Um, cause they were over wiping. So it was like, um, yeah, it was just like a causing irritation. And so I was like, okay, well they need a visual that says like wiping or keep wiping. And so I made those. That's <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. With mud instead of poop, but I probably will make one with like actual feces at some yeah, point. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. 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 Um, no, that's interesting. Um, also you're talking about like, so because a lot of the folks in, in sort of the kind of residential care, kind of adult context are often, you know, folks, older folks, folks that have come out of institutions, those sorts of things, um, you know, and lots of different directions that conversation could go. But wondering about, you know, sort of things like the hysterectomies, which might be more common in some of these folks. So if you've had a hysterectomy, that essentially means your uterus is removed. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of, di there's different sort of medical procedures that remove various amounts of sort of like that reproductive system. So some mm. people will have, um, like just their uterus removed, um, but they like their ovaries, uh, like remain, um, intact or like in the body, but some people have, um, an ovaridectomy. <laughs> the medical terms are probably yeah. I'm not like super fluent in, but where like the ovaries are removed and then some people have a surgery where like um, all of that reproductive structure is removed. Some people yeah. have like their cervix removed as well. Some people don't. Um, and so then they would not have like a cervix. They would, and then they just like close the vaginal canal. But um, and so and all of those surgeries are, you know, like have a recovery period and then have impacts like on like. Uh, hormones often people will have like a, a again not a doctor so like the reasons why different things would happen but people mm. will sometimes have like will have their ovaries still and so they're that um like impacts like hormonal changes and things like that uh less so yeah so there's various kinds of surgeries that people can mm. can have well, what i'm sure. wondering i guess is is and I'm, I'm guessing just from what you said already, it's probably not safe to assume that just because someone's had a hysterectomy or one of these kinds of surgeries, that they'll now be that now all these sort of symptoms of discomfort will be absent. Um, the like menstrual like cramps and things like that would be because mm. what you're feeling with like the menstrual cramps is the uterus contracting, right, so no right. uterus to contract, no cramping. Yeah, but some of the like if you know some of the hormones in the body are you can, 
come from the brain too. Right. So it doesn't necessarily mean that like all of anything that might be impacted by hormones is going to necessarily change. Um, and certain, you know, if we're thinking, we don't know enough about how that might look, I think in, in, in disabled populations, intellectually mm. disabled populations in particular. Um, but you know, people that have those kinds of surgeries that does impact their, can impact their sexual functioning. And I would use the term libido because people are kind of familiar with that term, but mm. that isn't really like an innate kind of drive. It just can change their sexual desire because it might be like more uncomfortable for a while and and those sorts of things. And it depends on the reasons why a person's had a surgery too. So mm. just like a ton of different variables and, and individualization. <laughs> and what yeah. about also with that also um, around again, women around um, um you know, menopause and, and those sorts of things, because, mm. you know, th th there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot more folks that are aging now that were, you know, that we were serving and we were, you know, working on a lot of this stuff. And now this whole menopause thing has come about. And I know, I know little I know about it. I know that generally disabilities are not, there's not a whole ton of information on menopause. In, out there like there hasn't been a lot of resources dedicated to research on menopause when it happens what it looks like how it happens how to treat it does it last forever you know it, um you know some mm. folks have no symptoms at all they get going to menopause and they leave it my and i had a family member that said that yeah I, actually i didn't have anything happen during menopause and they're in their 80s now and i'm like wow okay lucky you <laughs> and uh other people talk about you know sort of the the, the daily night sweats or all the mm. all these sorts of things and so you know, but but my guess is a lot of folks don't aren't aren't thinking about that either, just because mm -hmm. no one was talking about it when I was working in the group. Office. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that are contributing to that. I think one is we, you know, you know, life expectancy of disabled people, you know, is is slowly increasing. It's not the same as as non-disabled people. So right. there are more people with disabilities that are aging to the point where they're having a pause. People are not being subjected to forced sterilization and mm -hmm. having a, like a, a natural menopause, be, you know, yeah. so those those two things are are happening. Um, you know, people are thinking about it because people are in in caring um, living situations and not in institutions when they're going through menopause. Mm. Um, generally, I would say it's also just like a not talked about thing in, in sexual health in general. It's not, uh, it's not like often talked about, you know, for non-disabled people either, but is starting to be talked about more in recent years. So mm. as, as we're talking more about topics for non-disabled populations, slowly discussing those things in people with disabilities, it comes kind of along behind it, unfortunately, um, as opposed to alongside. Um, so, you know, there's a couple books that have been published in the last few years about, about menopause for folks that might be looking for supports for people with disabilities. There's a, a book that's came out in 2022 from uh, Kate Reynolds called mm -hmm. what is menopause a guide for people with autism spectrum disorders and special awesome. education needs and disabilities. It's a little kind of like illustrated book about what to expect from menopause. I actually like just got a copy of it. Um, 
myself that we're going to do on my pod, my podcast, another shameless plug <laughs> for, we do a sex ed book review yes. myself and Barb Gross, who works in this space as well. And so we talk about different sexual health education books and how inclusive they are and, and um, what, how we might adapt them for the, the folks that, that we tend to support. Um, and so there is a little resource that if people are, are curious, I can send you the link for that, that you can kind of tag into for folks and the show notes or (laughs) however you do it. But yeah, yeah, like there's, you know, that your period will stop and that you can have, yeah, all kinds of symptoms, emotional changes, night sweats, as you mentioned, kind of being one of them, um, vaginal dryness being another, which then if we're thinking about, you know, folks that are having sexual relationships or people that have a masturbation routine that might need to shift and change, um, as well. And that's important for people to be, and just generally potentially how interested people are in, in, Mm. in, in sexual experiences with themselves or with other people can change, um, based on hormones. And so, you know, if you've got a stagnant plan for like, and we're going to let Joan masturbate, you know, every night, or she's going to be, that's going to be on her schedule. And then like Joan's 65 and, is not into it anymore. You know, you don't have to put that on Joan's schedule just because it's been on her schedule for X amount of years or whatever. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, the classic private time scheduling that we see in sort of all, all programs and, and uh, you know, and it can, and and, uh, it's, it's a, it's a tangent, but the fact that it's scheduled is, is funny. Number one, you know, so you're going to have your, you know, uh, at four o'clock every day. That's, that's when I want to masturbate. Um, um, (laughs) you know, and, 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 and I, but I only get an hour. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and then, and then I'm interrupted (laughs) the next activity in my schedule and so on and so forth. So definitely some, some rigidity there. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, there, I mean, there is kind of thinking about masturbation here. I mean, there is sort of some, there is these assumptions that that sort of especially I think especially in sort of um you know obviously teenagers um and and then sort of you know younger 20 somethings in, in in the group home settings that you know um they're clearly engaging in this behavior because they either don't know how to masturbate and need to learn how um uh you know uh, I mean I think there's a, there's a lot of bias here there's sort of this assumption that mm-hmm. that 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 the male, you know, you know, needs to ejaculate, you know, a certain amount of time every, every day or or every week um, in order to be calm and relaxed and and, right. and, and happy, relaxed and engaged, as, as Dr. <laughs> Hanley likes to say. Um, uh, I'm sure this is exactly the scenario that he envisioned when he came up with that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For yeah, sure. yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Masturbation to ejaculation. That's when you're at your HRE, uh, all, all those kids. I, w- I am very into exploring the like intersections of that model and, um, and sexuality when someone's HRE is sexual. So Greg, if you're listening, call me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And just thinking about sort of turning the behavior off and on with sort of that in mind, I think would def- definitely present a little differently. Um, uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah. Is, is that, is that, is, I mean, is that, is that true? <laughs> is, is it true that like, oh, that, that basically all folks should learn to masturbate and masturbation mm-hmm. in and of itself is not something that's, you know, talked about a lot, you know, um, with, you know, it's just, you know, with, with sort of typically developing human beings, it's, you know, and, and I think with a lot of families, you know, um, you know, I mean, 
this really was a conversation I had with my dad when I was a kid. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and I don't imagine a lot of other folks have. And so, uh, you know, the, these folks sort of leave the family environment and end up in kind of these residential settings now. And, and for the first time, you know, other people are kind of noticing things, uh, but they're also making a lot of assumptions. Um, and, you know, so do, do folks all, do all folks need to learn how to masturbate? I mean, Short answer, no. Um, more in-depth answer. I mean, I think you touched on a few things that are like, there's a lot of stereotypes about masturbation that are just uh, like, just come from sort of society that's sort of like male centric or penis <laughs> sort of centric. You know, we if yes. we're talking about masturbation, you know, if, you know, didn't, don't have the like data, but definitely more of my clients with that kind of referral are younger boys that are, have penises. And then there's, I more rarely get asked for consultation for masturbation for somebody that's got a vulva, but, um, you know, I think there is this assumption that, yeah, this is something that somebody has to do and they must, they must be driven to do it. And this must be contributing to their challenging behavior. And I really caution people to not make that assumption and to really sort of like ideally take some data or just sort of if if they think that not having an orgasm is related to like an increase in challenging behavior, it should happen temporally kind of pretty close together and not like, well, later that day you know, he had this increase in behavior, but, you know, I have worked in, with a couple of clients and consulted on some cases where it is like someone coming out of their bedroom, distressed, um, to some level with an erection. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's easier to tell if that's what somebody has been, you know, trying to do if they have a body part that's on the shows, right. yeah, you know, sexual, uh, like arousal on the outside of their body more readily. There's signs of sexual arousal on the outside of a body of a person with a vulva too. um, clitorises get erections, but anyway, uh, so, that I think is a, you know, obviously a bit more indicative, but I don't think everybody needs to be taught. I've, I think that, um, some people are going to masturbate and some people are not, yeah. and some people are going to masturbate a lot. And some people are going to masturbate a little, and some people mm -hmm. are going to masturbate a lot for at a certain point in their life. And then they're going to masturbate, not at all. And then they're going to masturbate a lot again, and then a little bit, and then not at all. Like it just, it's changes so widely for everybody that mm -hmm. I don't think that it's helpful to make an assumption based on like, he's a teenage boy, there go, you know, it, is it more likely? Certainly like hormones, like those are all like real things. It's also more likely that people with vulvas are, are going to masturbate when, um, but there, it's just like, it's more hidden just generally, right? We don't talk about masturbation for, for women and, and young girls as much for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, it's because it doesn't leave any evidence. There's no like permanent product, um, there. So that's like, um, that's a little bit harder, um, for people to sort of recognize that it's happening. Yeah, um, I do think that there's a few cases where I say like, you know, teaching masturbation skills or supporting in that area certainly um, is helpful um, if somebody's obviously if somebody's injuring themselves 
um, if somebody's doing it in public, um, if somebody is, is using something that could be dangerous or they're attempting to gain access to something to use in a masturbation routine that could be dangerous. Those are all times when certainly technique and things like that needs to be, needs to be done. But I would say that there's lots of people that just spend like an hour in their room and they come out and, you know, families or caregivers or, or people working in group homes will say like, there's no evidence. Again, we're Mm -hmm. talking usually about ejaculation that anything happened. And so we really want him to go to completion. And it's like, well, why? Like he doesn't seem too bothered by it. Like he's good. And like this uh, idea that like orgasm is like the goal of masturbation, I think is also just a societal sort of assumption that we Mm -hmm. could could stand to kind of do away with. Like sometimes people just need time to explore their bodies and have like a sensory experience that doesn't necessarily end in that, Mm -hmm. in an orgasm. And if there's no harm to them physically, they're not engaging in other challenging behaviors related to it, then no, I don't think you have to like spontaneously be like, oh, they're 22. It's time. It's about time we teach them masturbation. I don't think that's necessary. And and does does masturbation, you know, even need to you know, involve a penis or, or, or a clitoris or whatnot? Yeah. Like, is, are there other forms that, you know, one could be engaged in and you would, and, and would never result in sort of a product as, as we're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like what masturbation is, is like, you know, for, I would say the majority of people, it's going to be genital focused, yeah. but for some people it can be like, just like, thinking sexual thoughts about whatever that person thinks is sexual without touching their body for some people with people with breasts or nipples. It could be that with people definitely like anal masturbation is a thing that people do. People Mm. tend to get more concerned about that. Or I get more consultation around that when there's like, um, like fecal matter that's being like, um, smeared or or there's concerns about like hygiene around that there's also more more safety concerns around anal masturbation just because you do need to be safer because there's like a lack of lubrication there's obviously hygiene stuff with like if feces are are part of it if people are inserting objects anally you need to be really careful about what those are um And so that's, I will do like lots more consultation around like provision of sex toys and and things like that Mm -hmm. for people, Mm -hmm. especially if they're, if they're inserting anything into anything, anal or vulva, but, or vaginally, but the vagina is a closed organ. So like, yes, somebody could theoretically put something in their vagina and it could get stuck there and they would need help to get it out. But if somebody put something anally inside their rectum. I mean, if people, you know, I've seen, there's kind of always like things on Instagram and online of like the funniest things or weirdest things found in a rectum that like those things can go miss fully missing in the rectum that requires like, you know, pretty invasive uh, medical procedures to extract. Um, And so people need to be really careful with, with those things as well. I've also done some consultation on, I'll give like a squick out warning for folks that might want to you know turn down their headphones for the next thing but for people that are placing things inside their urethra and their penis oh yeah um which is like a thing that some people do that's called urethral sounding and some people do it for for pleasure but i've had some clients that will have done it obviously because it 
I mean, probably because it feels good, but they're putting unsafe things into their urethra, right? Like sticks and stuff like that. And so if they're going to be doing something like that, then they need to be provided with a a safe and appropriate alternative. People usually want to stop those kinds of behaviors, which I totally understand. And I'm, I'm supportive of trying to reduce how often those things are happening. Cause if you do that kind of thing too much, it can cause more damage. If you're, if you're not doing it safely, there are people that practice urethral sounding and they're very safe and it's a kink that some people have. So I'm not talking about those folks, but, um, if people are doing it in an unsafe way at a high frequency that, that can result in, in potential damage. But usually if someone's discovered something like that, it feels good. It becomes part of their masturbation routine. It's pretty hard to get them to not do it anymore. Um, and, Mm -hmm. but there are like, there is safe equipment and safe things that people can use to do that. And I've got video models showing people how to do that safely if they, if they need. So those ones aren't for sale on my website. So I have to figure out a, how to not get kicked off PayPal forever for send for (laughs) selling like sexual content. They're not real penises that I'm showing. It's all like, you know, like models and stuff like that. But, um, if anybody has a client that's doing that and they need a video model or a step-by-step visual instruction i have those for sale she's just got a i'm curious what what's used for that for the sounding that's safe yeah they're they're like like medical kind of thing or no god no (laughs) definitely not a q-tip well i mean like people if people they don't test for stis in this way for people with penises anymore but it used to be that if people were getting an sti test there you would and you would swab the urethra with like a very tiny swab, but now they can test that was to test for chlamydia and gonorrhea and, but they can test for chlamydia and gonorrhea now through urine. So they don't do those swabs anymore. Um, but no, there's like, I always heard about the umbrella when I was young. Um, Oh, so it's some sort of device that goes in and then it goes into the urethra and then it opens to scrape out, you know, sort of skin cells or whatnot. Oh, I mean, yeah. maybe again, which, not a med- not a medical. Pro- that's definitely not what's used for sounding. Which, which, def- I can tell which you definitely that for sure. steered me towards you know safer practices. Uh, yeah. So urethral. Uh, now we're like on like a full kind of like uh, tangent, but I, I, what I love yeah. it. I even talk about it. So urethral um, sounding rods that that people could buy to do this safely mm. um, are they were originally like a medical device. Um, and so they're like a, a surgical steel sort of rod right. and they were used to go into the urethra to break up um, like scar tissue. If people right. are having difficulty with passing urine uh, or yeah, ejaculate yeah, 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 because yeah, yeah. of a buildup of scar tissue, Makes they're sense. basically like people might be more familiar with like vaginal dilators. So people that have a variety of different conditions, vaginal conditions can mm-hmm. use what's called dilators and they start really small and then they get they get larger for people to to get more comfortable with inserting something so people can comfortably insert tampons or finger mm. or or have intercourse um and so urethral sounding rods were made for that reason too that they um were to break up scar tissue and they start really small and they can get larger but then as people do they start being like oh this is a thing that kind of actually feels good. And I'd like to play around with this in a sexual non-medical context. Mm. So there are metal like surgical steel sounding, they're called sounding rods that people can 
put in and then you have to be very careful with like cleanliness. So like, and get like mm. lubrication and generally I, like I suggest that people buy like more like medical grade lubrication as opposed to just like drugstore lubrication, just because there's some additives and things like that in there that you don't want to get mixed up in, in the urethral environment. For sure. Um, and then obviously cleaning, you know, as well as possible. And there's also, um, silicone like medical grade silicone ones that, that people can buy those are like for sale at sex toy stores and on online and you can also buy them as medical equipment either wow so. just curious what uh just for the term terminology why is it called sounding do you know oh i don't know the origins of that yeah. term other than it, it is like a medical term mm -hmm. so but it's basically like a depth sort of reading mm -hmm. um again like medical squick out yes. warning but they um, but also yeah. when people are having like intrauterine devices inserted, when they measure the depth of somebody's uterus, that's also called a sounding rod that they, yes, I just, it just triggered a, a, a memory for me that, um, so when I'm not busy working, I'm volunteer firefighter mm. and we, and we have, uh, we're often told to sound the floor when we're going yeah. into burning buildings to, and, and, and that's to sort of determine you know, whether the floor is spongy or not, mm. uh, or, or firm, um, uh, as far as a risk of falling through it. Um, mm. so we sound the floor. And so I wonder if there's some sort of uh, parallel there in the language, but yeah, interesting. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. It's a medical, it's medical, medically medical origins. Exactly yeah, yeah, why that's exactly. what they chose. I don't know, but yeah. yeah. So thinking about, uh, kind of, you know, supporting staff and, and kind of like residential settings, you actually, uh, you were, uh, I, I will say, uh, Landa, you've been, um, you're, you're currently my most prepared guest ever. Um, normally, <laughs> normally I'm the one jotting down sort of talking points, but, but Landa kindly sent me this, uh, you know, uh, several pages of, of notes and articles and things that, to, to kind of refer to, which is just wonderful. Uh, <laughs> future guests, I'll always take a, a, a super sheet. <laughs> Um, but, um, you actually had a, 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 an article that you kind of shared that might help folks around, um, supporting around staff kind of supporting adults, uh, with uh, relationships and sex. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we've kind of delved in there for a minute about some, like what I would refer to, uh, this is, I t stole this from Dan Savage, who does a sex and relationship yeah. podcast and an article, but like, what do we call like varsity level <laughs> stuff? So <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, uh, you know, work on start with a conversation with like group home staff about how you're going to support, you know, your urethral sounding, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll just, well, that's varsity level. So we can take it back to just like the basics, right? Yeah, Let's start yeah, at elementary yeah, yeah. school and we'll figure <laughs> it out. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's like when I do consultations for um, like group homes or, or um, community organizations that support adults and, and, um, and facilities that aren't when, when people don't live with their family basically mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when people do live with their family, there's like a second layer of variables that kind of happen there, right? It's somebody's job. Um, they don't, uh, you know, maybe they don't feel comfortable because it is their job or, or they're mm -hmm. new to the job. And, you know, I know last time I was on, we talked about like staff turnover and the, right. and generally, and like those sorts of things. So, um, one like like line that I like about this that I that I sent to you is like to remember that like you're working in someone's home and they're not living in your workplace. Yes. Um, which um 
is like a line that I have taken. So full credit to open future learning and which is sort of like Dave uh, Hingsberger, who is unfortunately no longer with us Mm -hmm. um, and his group um, that is like sprung from some of his work called open future learning. And they do quite a lot of like uh, continuing education opportunities and stuff like that. Their Instagram for folks to check out is, is really good in terms of a rights-based approach. They've got some pretty cool, content of just like prepping with clients to like go to the bar and talking about swearing and stuff like that. I it's, it's great. So I think that that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, I've sort of stolen that or not stolen. I give credit because it's not Mm -hmm, stealing mm -hmm, if mm -hmm. I give credit, but I talk about that a lot is like remembering that like, this is where this person lives. So that's, I think important to remember. Um, but yeah, the so the article that I sent you is a systematic review, which uh, I like. I love a systematic review or a meta analysis. It just mm. does all the work for you. Yes, yes. Um, so it's um, Charitou. I th- not, I'm unsure of the pronunciation there, yeah. unfortunately. Um, Quail and Sutherland from 2021 from Sexuality and Disability, which I know I shouted out last time, is like mm. this is one of the journals that I. Um, have a subscription to that I pay for because the content is so valuable. Um, And they just like did an analysis of like, what does the research sort of tell us about what are some of the barriers that people face? And then I have kind of taken that, those barriers that they found and then try to help people find like workarounds or at least like address the barriers. Right. So Mm. um, I, I think a lot of people, especially like saying when people move from, they're no longer living with their family you know, people, it's a bit unclear, like who's in charge (laughs) at this point. Is it the person themselves? Like, do they have the right to sort of make these decisions for themselves? Um, Do their parents have the right to make the decision for themselves? Does the manager of the individual home, does the organization that's funding the home get to make the decision? So like, who's the decision maker? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that a lack of clarity for staff there is uh, is a huge barrier. And so I, you know, I encourage people to think about really outlining that really clearly or asking those questions of like, who's on first, <laughs> like who's in charge. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and t- rules are going to be different wherever everybody is, but you know, in BC, unless somebody has like a guardianship agreement, um, then they're generally assumed to be able to make all of their own decisions or I'll yep. generally ask like, is this person able to make their own medical decisions? And that's usually a good sort of like substitute ish mm, <laughs> sort of decision. Sometimes, maker. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes not always, but, um, then they should be able to make their own sort of sexual health decisions. Right. Um, and so Yeah. Like, and people think that, well, if we teach this, then they're not, then, you know, families are going to be upset or it's not, you know, family doesn't want us to teach this thing, but the person saying that they want it and we're kind of caught in between. Um, and so that's, that's it. I, I think that the other thing that this article pointed out is that most people, um, when they're surveyed and this, this is looking at, you know, we're thinking about like people supporting folks in settings like group homes, but it's also true for teachers and, and the research hasn't been done, but I assume is probably true for, you know, even just like behavior analysts is that most people 
a majority, not all, certainly, but most people agree that like sexual expression of some kind is like a universal need or like sexuality is an innate human sort of characteristic. Mm. And that can include people who are asexual, but that is their sexuality. So having sexuality is, is kind of innate, but people don't know then what to do with that. Right. So they say like, yeah, I agree. This is fine. But like, how, but how do I teach it? What's my role? What do I do next? So I think we've kind of gotten past and I, I feel this way about like, I don't know, the behavior analysis police might come for me, but um, like when I see research about preference assessments and it's just like, yeah, we got it. We know preferences. It's like, <laughs> I don't know how many more articles we really need about like multiple stimulus without replacement to be like, right. cool, cool. Got it. It's a thing. We'll work with it. Um, but around like, is there a need for sexual health education? Like there's so many articles being like, there's a need, there's a need, there's a need. And there's not a lot of, and here's what to do about it. Right. Like that's yep. still where the gap is. Right. It's the, it's the need. And then it's the research to practice. Um, and, and quite frankly, in this case, it's going to have to go from practice to research. Um, getting funding for research around sexuality is really hard in Canada. I imagine it's kind of become virtually impossible in the United States to get, mm. you know, government funding for, for research and, sure. and intersect disability with that. And it's mm. like, forget a basket. Um, so like people want to do something, but they don't know what to do. And then they don't know if it's part of their job. They, and I think that one thing that this article pulls out is that people are afraid of getting in trouble has been the biggest one that I've heard. They're afraid Absolutely. of getting in trouble from their employer. They're afraid of getting in, in trouble from the group home manager. They're afraid of getting in trouble from the families. And so when I w consult with those kinds of spaces, I usually just, A, if somebody's reached out to me at that point, they're probably open to having the conversation. So I'm less worried about the people that call me and I'm more worried about the people that don't, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, but I usually say like, if you can, if you're looking for a step one, step one is, is to make sure that your staff know that you're backing them as an organization or as a manager or whatever around, even at least starting to explore this topic, because people are afraid they're going to lose their job mm -hmm. if they tell somebody that they can masturbate or they say, yeah, it's fine that you're accessing pornography or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a big one in itself. The pornography conversation. Um Yes. But I also like think about sort of, you know, your your point about the research is 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 real. I mean, both in terms of no one doing it and there's be no funding for it. But I think the other thing is is who's reading that research, right? I mean, I I I, yeah. I, I know in, in you know, and again, it's been a while, but in my experience working in, in group home context, you know, the managers were never giving me articles to read, and and uh, they, nor were they, you know, um, and so, you know. I'm sure there's lots of research now that says, you know, yes, adults with developmental disabilities need sex education, but, but how is that information getting to, you know, the agencies that support these folks? Um, um, and even is it, uh, mm -hmm. so, so I'm curious just in, in, in your own experience, cause I, I know you have done some consultation in this area. In fact, I've, you know, had, uh, supervisees of my own reach out to you to, to, mm -hmm. to get consultation for, folks are supporting in group homes. Um, what, what's it been like these days? Obviously I don't want you, you're not going to speak to sort of specific agencies and, and they'll all be different, 
Uh, but what what has been sort of the reception these days around, you know, sexuality education and whatnot in, in sort of adult settings? I know we can only really speak to British Columbia and, 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 and the ones you've been consulting with, but. Everyone wants to have control of their life, to make their own choices, decisions, and set goals that are meaningful and important to them. And students who are neurodivergent are no exception. Self-determined research indicates a host of positive quality of life outcomes for people who are neurodivergent, including better employment and independent living outcomes. Whether your students want to attend college or obtain employment after high school, they will need to acquire the skills necessary to pursue career life directions that are personally meaningful and are of their own volition. The self-determination course offered by CBI is an ideal tool for teachers to help students develop the essential competencies for self-determined behavior. The course consists of five modules with comprehensive lesson plans that are, include embedded resources, easily adapted for your diverse learners. Using the built-in self-reflection and assessment exercises, teachers can assess students' growth towards their self-determination and self-advocacy behaviors. If you're interested in learning more, check out the CBI Consultants webpage at www.cbiconsultants.com. The second secret word is varsity. Yeah, I mean, again, maybe this is um, because I I don't do a I'm like because because I'm so busy, because there's not a lot of us that work in this space, I don't have a lot of time to reach out to a variety of organizations being like, mm. hey, do you want, would your staff like a sexual health workshop and talking mm-hmm. about the barriers and things like that? Like I do have a workshop like that, um, that I, that I've done. Um, but it tends to be, it tends to be like, there needs to be like a, a like a key person there. Right. So you know, if I know somebody that works at a certain agency or right. that has a contract at a certain agency, they'll be like, we'd love to have you in and, and come and, and do the, do this presentation. So usually for me, that's been like, if an agency has a BCBA that is attached to them and then like in BC, mm. you know, people know that this is the work that I do and they know me. And so they'll, they'll reach out and, and it'll be kind of like a pro D that'll be offered. Mm-hmm. So there are definitely agencies that are, that are reaching out for sure. Um, but I know that there's a lot, I know that there's a lot of different providers that are not reaching out mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I don't know that that's because they don't want to, that could be just like a marketing thing on my end that I need to kind of get that mm-hmm. the word out, um, a little bit more. Um, but people are, um, I've never been sort of like, shut down if I've had a conversation with somebody, um, or if I've said like, Oh, that'd be a great thing for this organization. Or as the organization thought about this, they'd never been like, Oh, good God. No, like we, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's always sort of been like, yeah, that, that sounds really good. And then it just comes down to sort of like time and funding issues and things like that, unfortunately, mm-hmm. which is, you know, just like a tale as old as time. Um, and, it, or unfortunately a lot of it is very like, at this point still in my work reactive. So there's a client in a, in a group home setting, um, and they engage in some behavior and the staff is uncomfortable and the, and the organization is uncomfortable and they don't know what to do next. And so then that, then that 
organization or agency will sort of like reach out for support sometimes for that particular client. But then I will usually try to like weasel in, like it would actually be really great if the whole agency could have every, if, you know, I don't know what every agency's pro D looks like or availability, but I'm super flexible around. Like if you want me to make a recording, cause I get that, like, there's a, if you're, especially if you're running group homes, like not all of your staff can just like come to a pro D day, yes. right? Like some of your staff are going to be supporting the people that you're like working in their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but like record it and then like you can have act, people can watch it and you can mm-hmm. monitor internally to like everybody watch it and, and all those sorts of things. So I think it's, it's growing, right? Like just like sexual health and, and discussions of sexuality and, and those things are becoming more accepted in society. It's becoming more accepted to talk about this in disability spaces. It's just lagging kind of far behind, but Mm -hmm. the feedback I get is usually great. There's always a few people that are like, this is really uncomfortable. I don't think this should happen for the clients Mm -hmm. that I support. There's, you know, they should, they need to be protected and like, they're just like little children and adult bodies and like those sorts of feedback comments that I'm just like, you know, that, you know, those, those individual people are just kind of like on a journey of accepting that not everybody has the same values as them. So they'll, they'll, they'll come along. But, and I Mm. think that there needs to be space created in some settings where like, okay, if we need to address a certain behavior or have a person that somebody can talk to, if this makes this person feel really uncomfortable because of their religion, because they've had some sort of sexual trauma, they're like, that person should also does need workplace accommodations for some of those those things. Right. But I don't think it, it, an accommodation should be made if it's just like, I don't think this is important. I don't, I'm not sure that qualifies for needing an accommodation. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, by the way, you, you mentioned just kind of, I forgot to ask about this because I, I, you, you actually mentioned that you do offer some, some uh, kind of going back to the masturbation for a second, some, some, some training in that area for the longest time. You know, the you you kind of referenced Dave Hinsberger earlier, mm. and and for the longest time, you know, the only things that have been out there were were were, were those two videos, um, yeah, the, the the handmade love and the fingertips. That's um, right. And because uh, and, and I remember, I remember, I had the, uh, you know, you I had the unique job at one point when I was working for one of these agencies. It's going back about fifteen years ago of converting all of our VHS resources to DVD resources, which, <laughs> which, which meant I had to watch all of our VHS resources. Um, um, and, uh, and, 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 and I had to watch handmade love about seven times in order to get it converted properly. <laughs> um, and, you know, you know, I mean, certainly just watching, you know, a man masturbate over and over again can, can, can get a little dull, but well, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was a very, I'm not sure. I, I never, we never had a copy of the fingertips video, but I, mm. I know the handmade love video was literally, um, you know, a guy, which, you know, my sense, he was probably, you know, an adult film actor um, mm. who, who, and, and the video has him go to his, um, you know, 1970s uh, bedroom <laughs> dresser drawer. Uh, he pulls out some, uh, you know, classic seventies, eighties, um, uh, porn magazines um, starts flipping through them and then starts masturbating uh, to, to completion. And that's essentially the end of the video. And then I think there's a bit on hygiene and, and, mm-hmm. and, and that's about it. Um, 
these videos were really hard to come by for folks. Yeah. Like you, you had to you had to know somebody to get them. Number one, <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, and to get them not on VHS form. Um, and, and they were also pretty expensive, I think at the time too, uh, wh whatever that uh, company that, uh, that, that he had, uh, Dave had in, in Toronto that he was running was selling them. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, but that was it. That was the only thing available. Um, and up until even recently, I still hear folks sort of reference those two videos as sources, but it sounds like you have some other things out there that are available, maybe a little modernized. Yeah. 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 A little modernized. Um, yeah, so I, they do still sell them. You still have it's still, but it comes as a DVD now. But nice. now it's like do like I I have them yeah. the DVDs, but I have no way to play them. Right. Um, <laughs> so I you I need to like digitize them yeah. from a DVD onto yeah. like a da like a download or whatever. So, um, yeah. One thing that I will say is that there's like the videos and everyone talks about the videos, but the videos also came with or do still come with the DVDs come with um, a, a like instructional booklet, not for the client, but like for the the support people. Yeah. And that I think is actually the more valuable part of those mm. videos is the is the stuff in the in like the skinny little workbook. Yeah, we didn't so know those. Yeah, 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 yeah. They just got lot like they got cast aside or whatever. But yeah. that that actually has some like good information. Mm -hmm. they're, they're you know quite old at, at this time, but it's still good information in them. Um, we had an episode of the podcast where we talk of my podcast where we talk about about the about the those two books. Nice. A couple things with them, and I can't remember if we talked about this last time I was on, but that those yes, they're like adult actors um or somebody who was fine with being filmed masturbating um can be considered pornographic material yep. because it shows a real person masturbating um it could be considered pornography now the definition of pornography is certainly up i think for debate and no like if i said what's pornography and asked you know 100 people everybody might have like a different idea Absolutely. so some people might say you know, um, I mean, ugh, we don't have to get into like the politics stuff, but like mm. the statue of David is, is classed as pornography, right. you know, in the state of Florida right now. So the def or it's like, uh, you know, pornography of, of two consenting adults, you know, having some sort of sexual intercourse or more than sure. two adults, whatever. Sure. But so I think that particularly for clinicians it's important to understand that it could be viewed as pornography and so you have to be very careful with who you're showing it to or giving it to and my general um, guideline for that is to not show it to anybody who isn't of the legal age wherever you're practicing that they would be allowed to access pornography like a magazine or whatever right but um and so what I've made are videos and um, visual supports that use not real people, but use like what looks like real genitals. They're mm -hmm. just things. I just buy like sex toys. Sure. People message me all the time. You're like, where'd you get those great models? And I'm like, I, the, the sex toy store that mm -hmm. I work at sometimes. Um, and so, um, so I've made video models using those and I have, so what I have at the beginning of the videos is like the, you know, the following contains realistic 
genitals, but no real pictures, no real pictures or, or mm, um, gotcha. video of genitals. This like content is made for like educational purposes. And that's what I say to people when I'm showing even like some of the books that I have that are like just, just general sex ed books. I'll say, you know, we're going to look at and when I'm showing them to kids under 18 or, or anybody, really, I say like, we're going to look at some pictures, there are drawings of body parts. Um, some of the people aren't wearing clothes and they're naked. Some of the drawings are private body parts. Um, and is that, is that, oh, these pictures are for learning and that, um, they're safe to look at. And if it's like a kid under 18, I'll sh show them to their parents first and say like, these are the materials that we're going to be using. And like, your parents are okay with me show sharing them with you. Um, are you okay to look at them? Yep. So they still can say no, if they don't want to look at pictures of naked bodies. And so, um, there's always like a consent kind of process that happens there. Most of the time for younger kids are like, Oh yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Um, so I have that. Cause I think that, that for me, again, I would be extraordinarily cautious, especially if you're practicing in, in the United States, but quite frankly, in anywhere now, just because of kind of political climate around some of this stuff, be very cautious about who you're showing what to. Um, I would, you know, at, when I was at APBA presenting with some colleagues a little while ago, someone asked like, would a social story that has like a board maker picture of a penis be considered pornography? And I was like, I, I would honestly, right now I would under operate under the assumption of yes, until you get some pretty clear direction. Otherwise, um, it's wow. just kind of risky, um, unfortunately. So I usually say that the difference between pornography is pornography is made with the purpose of causing sexual or eliciting sexual arousal or excitement. Yes. And the materials that I use are created for the purpose of education. Now, are there educational materials that can elicit a sexual arousal response? Sure. Incidentally, certainly like anybody who grew up in my generation that saw like had somebody that took a national geographic magazine that had people that were unclothed yep. in it and it felt like a sexual response from it. Right. It's like, that's not why national geographic published those pictures. Yeah. So sadly, I, I, you know, I think if national geographic published something like that now, they would probably, it'd be like a TikTok hell firestorm but mm -hmm, um <laughs> so people i think just you know i have some of those things available but i would say like people do i think need to exercise like a pretty high amount of caution mm. before showing them to folks um and again if you're thinking of like working in like a setting like a group home you know do I wish we lived in a world where it would be like, Hey, like you said you needed to masturbate, but you're not sure like how to use the lube. Here's a picture of like the steps of like what that looks like. And like, there you go. And I could just give that to you and like, it would just be fine and you would use it and it would be great and no one would get in trouble. But unfortunately that's not the world that we live in. So I do think that it's a good idea to get permission from like whoever, like the management or things sort of saying like, this yep. is the resource that we want to use. We're planning to give it to this person. Um, you know, if that person's parents or guardians are still kind of heavily involved, showing it to them and explaining to them what the purpose is. Most of the time when I'm giving those kinds of visuals and resources, it's because someone's hurting themselves because yes. they're doing something unsafe. Yes. And so I'm not like, oh, I want to give them a video of what ejaculation looks like. It's like, no, it's because they're the way that they've learned to to masturbate is, you know, pressing their penis between some hard, two hard surfaces and mm, they are causing sure. damage. And so yeah. to try to get 
to ejaculation. So by showing them what that looks like, um, could work or people, um, you know, I've talked with people as well around like ejaculation and, and orgasm for, for anybody, um, is like a pretty big sensory experience. And so if you are like working up to that heightened sense state of arousal and any other time in your life that you feel that kind of heightened state, everybody around you has been like, calm down, calm down, calm down. That like once you get there, you're kind of trained over years to, to stop then. Right. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. it's like, this is the one time where we want you to keep well, pushing that's a really good point. That, yeah. like yeah. orgasm th- those like body sensations that every other time people tell you to calm down this is when mm-hmm. you need to keep going yeah. and so i've got videos to show people what ejaculation looks like with vulvas it's harder like just to visually like there isn't sure. a visual if you got like really close you could see contractions happening in someone's body right, i'm sure right, right. but um but I have a video model of what ejaculation looks like, which is just like you can buy ejaculating dildos. And so I make oh. my own fake um, ejaculate Perfect. out of out of lubricant that you can buy because it looks like ejaculate. And then I make a video that sort of shows what that process looks like, because lots of people don't know what that looks like or what to do and then how to clean up after. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, people can email me if they want. Not all of those are available on my website again, but yeah. (laughs) These things aren't things necessarily you buy from the, you know, disability, you know, support store. You know, often you're getting these things at the, at the adult store that you work at or other places like that. Like these, these aren't resources that you can, you no one can Google. You probably can't Google a sort of, well, maybe you can, but I mean, a lot of people wouldn't want to Google any of this stuff. But yeah, 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 yeah. That's why I've done the Googling for you. So, you know, and people can't often, right? Like, yeah. or they have to do it on their personal computer. Like, yeah. I, I even I like I I have to check my junk folder like pretty frequently because I get emails from people and it says sex or porn or masturbating or something in it. Even just people reaching out for for um, consultation or whatever. And it gets flagged. Um and put it and thrown in my junk. Yeah, and I miss yeah, like, yeah. like important work opportunities. That's um, so funny. But, You're probably the only yeah. person that looks in their junk email, finds the porn related emails. And yeah. goes, Those and ones go back to the inbox. That's right. Put this in the, <laughs> yeah. Microsoft does not know what to do with yeah, my, yeah. with my like flagging what's like appropriate. It's <laughs> so funny. So funny. Yeah. But yeah, no, they're just like, not, it, it's not available and, and nor do people like, you know, like this is what I do all of the time. So like, yeah. it makes sense for me to invest a bit of money in like having these things so I can make sure. a resource for people. If somebody's like a clinician and they're practicing and they're doing a lot of different things, it doesn't make sense to spend money on like a, an ejaculating dildo and the fake yeah. ejaculate and, and make a video model and blah, 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 yeah. whatever. Like, you know, but I've done, I've done it. Um, and I've got like a whole list of, um, ones that I still want to do, like talking about hygiene, like I've had on my list for a while to have a, a one about like how to, how to properly wash a penis with a, uh, uh, foreskin. Um, mm, so I really have important. all of the stuff to, to make those. Um, but I have to do, I do have ones made already for vulva hygiene. So if people want, and that's another thing that like, speaking of people trying to be helpful, you know, God, God love them, but is like giving people with vulvas like uh like wipes and like lotion and like summer's eve and like some of yeah, these the, like products the, the that are made for like whatever, yeah. yeah like clean vulvas are like actually like quite damaging to the to the to some of the like the 
microbiome that exists on people's vulvas. And so I have a whole video model about like how to wash a vulva, what to do and not do just wash it with water, no soap. Um, and so, you know, I have, I have those too, but those are some of the things that people try to be helpful by being like, Oh, take these wipes or wipe with this. And it's like, ah, that could actually cause irritation and infection. And Mm -hmm. yeah. No, and that's really important. I mean, and, and similarly, like for, you know, the, the, the folks with penises and whatnot, there's lots of different things that can kind of go on there that, you know, folks mm-hmm. would never know about, you know, especially in these programs that are actually, I said earlier, there's a lot of men, but they're, they're there for most of, more often than not, they're staffed by women. Um, uh, because, you know, generally speaking in our field, women are, are kind of, you know, the majority. And so they wouldn't even necessarily know what symptoms to look for on maybe like, you know, like I'm thinking like sort of like um, when you talk about sort of washing a penis with foreskin, there's lots of risk of sort of fungal infections, you know, mm-hmm. that can lead to itch and whatnot. And, and you really can't even tell sometimes by looking at, you know, at, mm-hmm. even looking at the penis that there's something there or, or, or mm-hmm. hemorrhoids and things like that from, you know, for, you know, we have a lot of folks with on, on medication for, you know, for for you know bowel movements whether for constipation or whatnot or or medications mm-hmm. that cause constipation and then these folks are engaging in you know um um you know um a lot of pushing and whatnot and getting you know yeah. bloody yeah you know rectums and whatnot and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah 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 and it's those kind of things that I think like you know I think physicians um you know are like overburdened in our province anyway, for sure. But like, and aren't having the, again, it's like everything's lagging a bit behind, right? So physicians aren't having conversations with folks around a medication that could cause constipation. And then that might lead to hemorrhoids because you're straining too much to like pass stool. And then they're not having a conversation with people going, but that's starting maybe a bit more now and going on antidepressants. And that could impact your ability to like achieve an erection and like those conversations are just starting with non-disabled populations and in my experience are like not had with disabled populations whether mm-hmm. someone's mm-hmm. able to do their own medical appointments or they're going in with a, a care provider or or whatever that information isn't being relayed like hey this medication that this person's taking for this other reason super necessary could lead to constipation and so you'll need to be like watching out for their like making sure they're having regular bowel movements yeah. blah 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 like if you and like a person working in a group home isn't doesn't shouldn't be expected to have that level of medical no, not knowledge. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we're always asking the people with the least amount of um, the most amount of heart and care and the least amount of training to do the hardest jobs. Absolutely. Um, and somehow like know all of this stuff. Like it's just it's bonkers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. OK, cool. So. You used a term earlier, which I like, which I think is a good segue about how this stuff was kind of all elementary in terms of, you know, education and whatnot. Um, uh, and uh, But now I want to kind of get into the varsity stuff again. Um, <laughs> okay. you know, we did talk about a little, we got a little ahead of ourselves with the urethral sounding, which is, you know, you know, I, th- I think something about for, for a lot of listeners when we kind of get into the varsity topic is, you know, there's going to be a lot of folks that who are listening that certainly aren't folks with disabilities, maybe they are, um, that also don't know anything about any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I mean, like I'm grateful sounding, I've never even heard of it. And, and, yeah. and, and the idea of it, um, you know, um, you know, I won't lie. It made me cringe. Um, just, just in, in, from a pain perspective alone, you know? Yeah. Um, it's one um, of those things that that's why we give that little like warning. Cause for yeah. it's the one thing for me too, where I'm like, yeah. Ooh. 
don't love it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, every time you, you know, I, I watch, uh, I don't know if you've ever watched on, um, I think it's on like MTV or something. There's that TV show called Ridiculousness. Um, mm. And it's basically um, uh, this guy who's cur- who curates uh, random videos from YouTube and other places of people doing really ridiculously dumb things to themselves. Um, um, and then yeah, a big disclaimer, do not send videos. We will not open them, he says. Uh, <laughs> but qu- quite often there are multiple videos of folks getting, you know, um, um, you know, um, either either falling mostly men falling on you know railings between their legs or getting you know massive objects drilled at their gonads and whatnot and every mm-hmm. time i see those i am you know i am living vicariously <laughs> through them in absolute pain and, and and sickness so i can only imagine you know that some of these topics for folks are just difficult even to talk about um you know in general let alone consider the idea that you know the individuals that they support might um uh, you know, A, have an interest in these things or B, you know, already participate in, you know, in in in, in some of these kinds of activities. Um, so I kind of want to talk about varsity stuff um, and, mm-hmm. and, and of what are, you know, some areas that we might need to think about supporting folks in um, and, 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 and kind of diving into that area. So you said mm-hmm. you did a presentation uh, uh, at SexAB, which maybe, before you even talk about the presentation, you can just tell folks what Sex ABBA is. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sex ABBA is a conference that happens every year, usually in January, that's organized um, by um, a couple of Brad humans, behavior analysts, uh, Warner Leland. Um, mm-hmm. They're the uh, the the main the main sort of like organizer often of that, along with Barb Gross, who it co-hosts my podcast. So, like full disclosure of a kind of <laughs> multiple yeah. relationship uh, there. So they um, organize that conference, and it's um, a variety of just like sexuality and ABA related topics. It's usually one day of a variety of different speakers in January. And then they usually have a workshop day kind of before that conference where there's like a bit more in depth. So, um, this year Warner and Barb both did kind of like a half day presentation and then lots of different folks presenting lots of information. There's been three of them as well. And they also did like a research symposium. Um, yeah, so people can definitely check that out. They usually issue like a call for papers for the conference in like the fall. And then it's usually every January. So if folks are, and it's really online, cool. super accessible, okay. really mindful of um, like accessibility needs for all folks. One super valuable thing that they organize every year on it is a panel of autistic and neurodivergent. I think they're all, uh, most of the folks on the panel have been autistic in the past, but that mm. might not be accurate. Um, sort of like self-advocates and, and folks just talking about their own experiences um, with awesome. Uh, sexuality and um uh, and and lack of sex education or or how that how they've been perceived in terms of their sexuality um so those like kind of like lived experience bits which is super valuable so yeah totally. folks should definitely check out sex abba really cool um, yeah so i did a presentation yeah and i think like th- this past year that was what i you know said in that presentation was more varsity level like i don't suggest people getting started in this field and in, in any of these Right. But I do think that it's I don't know that I want to say that it's important for people to be aware of all of this, because I don't know that that's a fair expectation to put on like an already overburdened um, behavior analyst um, 
uh, who, you know, obviously is like the main audience for, for your podcast, but, mm. um, to know about, but I would say like, if somebody's doing something and you think it might be sexual, do a bit of research, tell your, whoever you need to in your organization that that's why you're Googling mm. these things. Yeah. Um, or do it on your own computer um, to see if it's a thing. So, you know, like somebody putting something in their urethra, you know, it just says, you know, as an example, is like, that's a thing that people do. People having foot fetishes. That's a thing that people do. Mm-hmm. Um, another one that, um, you know, that is a bit more common is um, um, have liking diapers. So yep. there's, uh, or like using diapers as part of sexuality and sexual expression, or, or yep. sometimes it's not about sexuality and sexual expression. It can be a comfort thing for lots of folks. Um, so if somebody you're, that you're working with or, you know, um, you know, tying and like, um, like, like, uh, bondage sort of stuff. So like wrapping mm-hmm. parts of their body, really wanting to be like, have that kind of like pressure or like, right you know, those sorts of things, like those are things that people engage in. And so it it is helpful to just know that there are, there are people who've already done the work around, like, how do you make this safe? Sure. <laughs> um, and those people can be and contacted as experts. So the sex ABBA thing that I did, which will also be, I feel like this is just, I feel, I always feel like I'm doing like a bit of like shameless plugging, but whatever. Yeah. I'm here yeah no it is. shame. No, definitely um, do it. That um, this presentation will also be available soonish upcoming. They're working on kind of processing it through the um, study notes, ABA mm. or SNABA, their certified behavioral sexology uh, program. That's um, kind of like a co um co-project between um study notes aba and empowered a center for sexuality um with nicholas mayo either um have you had him on you should have him on i haven't had him on yet but i do we do have uh one of uh the folks at our organization is in the course right now oh okay um, okay cool uh, with with nicholas i i had i've 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 we've been in contact several times but he's just been so busy with uh, super this, busy this, yeah this this program that i think you know, just, uh, it, 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 I think he's wait, waiting for me to get on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You <laughs> yeah. should, uh, you should definitely reach out because some of like some of this stuff, like he has like a lot of experience with and, and a lot more, more than me. And, and anyway, so this yeah, presentation sure. that I did um, will be available for people to buy for like CEUs. You don't have to do the whole program. It's just, you could just take this Got one it. course if folks are interested, but, and I talked about supporting adult clients, adult autistic and neurodiverse clients, um, uh, with accessing what I called like sexuality spaces. So, um, accessing, going to sex toy stores, going to strip clubs, um, um, connecting with like cam professionals on, uh, like cam sites where there's like an, a one on one to one interaction, um, BDSM or like kink professionals. Um, and then, and also full service sex workers and mm-hmm. sort of some of the work that I've done, um, with clients in sort of talking about prepping them to do some of these things when they've expressed that this is a goal that they want for themselves. Mm-hmm. What are sort of the, some of the skills that we could work on again, varsity level, I wouldn't suggest that people sort of like start <laughs> working in this space, um, here, but you had sort of talked about before that there's lots of things that people don't know about. And as part of this, um, as part of this presentation, because I'm not, well, I do work at a sex toy store. So I had that 
um, knowledge, like knowledge that was kind of first person, but I did talk to some other folks that work in sex toy stores too, but I talked with people who do all of these different kinds of work. So like I did interviews with them, asking them for their opinion of like, if somebody that was autistic or neurodivergent wanted to access the space, what would they need to know? Um, what is it? What does that look like? Um, and all of them from people that work at sex toy stores, all the way to full service sex workers that I talked to said that, you know, this isn't really like an, an autism disability neurodivergent. This is like everybody need doesn't know how to be appropriate in these spaces often. Right. 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 Um, or what the expectations are. Um, so like a, you know, a full service sex worker might have like a screening process um, for their safety and the client safety where they would want to have that person send them their, a copy of their driver's license and and maybe, you know, some other kind of proof of identification of, mm-hmm. of who they are before they agree to meet them at whatever, you know, location. Some people do, this is getting kind of complicated, but like in calls and out calls. So they're going to sure. you or you're coming to them or whatever. Right. But, um, and, and so we might've taught people that you should never share a copy of your driver's license with anybody as a safety measure. Of course. <laughs> and so all now all of a sudden this person's saying that I need to do this in order for this thing to happen. And, but the person doesn't is like really rigid with following rules. And so they, yep. they're not able to access that service, yep. that person, that professional, um, because they're, they refuse to do the screening process. And that's like a hard boundary that a lot of sex workers have not all, but a, a lot. Um, And so like kind of little things like that, where people don't know what the expectations are. And I think that's kind of broadly, but if, if somebody's saying that they want to do some of these things, um, you know, what is, what maybe are some of the skills that we might want to think about? I did give like a pretty big caution around this sex worker part. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. I do not agree with this, but because it is um, the laws around sex work and what's legal and, and not legal and different countries and different states and different places is, is really kind of tricky. So, um, but even something like sex toy stores, right? Like those are, well, even that's (laughs) depending on where you are. are What are the laws laws here and like in British Columbia around sort of sex workers around sex work? Well, in Canada, it's, there's like lots of like ongoing and like, I, you know, this isn't, I'm not a legal scholar by any means, but there are certain things associated with sex work that you can and can't do. And then there's different rules for like, um, you know, like advertising sex work, um, you know, could be, you know, an organization could, you know, have legal consequences if they are found to be advertising sex work. So that's why you don't see advertisements for sex workers, but it's, and it's illegal to purchase sex from somebody, but it's not illegal to sell like be the person selling sex. So, so it's for all intents and purposes, illegal, but it's also in a lot of different places, like not actively decriminalized. So I shouldn't say that because that's Mm. not true, but isn't, isn't prosecuted. So police and prosecutors are not prioritized. Yeah. Yeah, It's not enforced. Um, And there's, I can, there's some sex worker like advocacy organizations that have lots of Mm. sort of like good info about um, about some of that. So uh, like in Canada, um, there's a Canadian Alliance for sex work law reform that has some good, like one pagers about what's allowed and not allowed. Um, there's a sex workers outreach, outreach project or swap that's in the, like, uh, the States and kind of like international. Hmm. So it's tricky, um, for sure. And so from, 
from a behavior analyst sort of perspective, you know, obviously our ethical code sort of says that we can't, um, you know, participate in or promote illegal activity. However, I think it's important to recognize that like this could be something that somebody might want to do. And like, mm-hmm. are there some things that we could work on with them to right. ensure their safety and the safety of a, a sex worker that they might be contacting or even somebody the legal profession? How do you be safe when you're purchasing from a sex toy store? How do you be safe when you're at a strip club? What are the expectations? Um, And it's not necessarily that we're going to be going with people to those places, but like, you know, so some of the stuff I talked about was like at sex toy stores, like what questions can you ask and what questions can you not ask? Like what things can you tact and what things can you not? So like you can tact that you're feeling nervous, but you can't tact that you're feeling turned on. Right. (laughs) That makes the people uncomfortable. Um, at strip clubs, like what's the expectation around, like, if you're sitting in the front row, then you're expected to tip and you should tip a certain amount of money and you can't put coins on the, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't throw coins at the dancers, um, rules of sort of talk and touch and understanding that like all of these, like these, you might think that these behaviors that people are doing, you might've been previously taught are signals that that person is, you know, sexually or romantically interested in you. But in this context, the, those rules don't apply anymore yeah, because yeah. that's part of the person's job. So they're going to probably, you know, they might sit, sit and spend time with you. Um, but what are the rules around touch? Like those mm. sorts of things. So it's like, it's pretty complicated to teach some of those like discrimination skills, especially because a lot of the rules there are different than the rules that people would have out mm-hmm. in the, in the civilian norm, non-sex working world for sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think I like, like I wouldn't even know like what to do in a lot of those situations. So mm-hmm. like, I, I don't even know if these resources are available to, you know, sort of the typical Joe on the street who's sort of like, you know, going to go into a strip club and do things they're not supposed to do. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the thing with like strip clubs in particular um, is that like, you know, they're, they're pretty good at like your, behavior is going to meet with punishment pretty quickly. Like you're going to get bounced from the club pretty quick. If you violate a rule, you're not going to be given like a second chance. (laughs) Um, You're just going to get kicked out right away. Um, But yeah, like they don't like rules aren't posted. And there's so there's a lot of like those like unwritten rules or sometimes rules are posted, but they're like small and like Mm -hmm. at the front of a club Mm -hmm. or something. And, and the, the rules for like what dancers are and aren't, aren't allowed to, to, do in terms of like how much how what parts of their clothes they can take off and what they have to leave on varies depending on where you live um so i always say to people like if you've learned what stripping looks like from like video from movies like you might be at a in a place where like they have to keep their nipples covered and so you know that you know, if you're disappointed and you can't <laughs> that you're not seeing like full breasts or like you think that mm-hmm. that dancers are going to take all of their clothes off, um, but they have to keep their bottoms on, or you think that you can touch dancers, but the rule at this club in or in this jurisdiction is no touching. Um, then you're not actually allowed to touch the dancers. So, um, and even if you are allowed to touch the dancers, you have to ask them first. So have you found there's like a demand for this information? Like, I mean, like I, I, I'll admit, I mean, it's been a while since I've worked. I mean, maybe it's not so much the group home clients that you're getting for mm-hmm. for these kinds of conversations, and more sort of just folks that are, you know, um, uh, you know, 
maybe a little more independence or whatever, mm-hmm. and, and they're just sort of advocating for themselves. Um, uh, but is this something that 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 we see we see a lot of? I mean, I don't I wouldn't say that we see a lot of, but mm. it's we like I've seen it enough yeah. that I thought that it warranted some discussion of yeah. or that this might be something that people might come across yeah. or just like even if in some of it is like more theoretical, even of just understanding like how you could use behavioral science or behavioral terminology to sort of understand some of these things and think about some of the complex situations, um, that people might need. And again, is sort of thinking about, um, you know, you might not be thinking about, Oh, this is a skill that somebody uses when they kind of go to a strip club. But if you can teach somebody that like, you need to read the room essentially, and know what the expectations are for different places, that skill could help somebody if when they are an independent adult and they choose to go to a strip club, if they've learned like, Oh, I need to read the room. I need to look and see what other people are doing and kind of copy what they're doing. Then that will be it. That's like a helpful, like generalizable skill for when you're going to a new place. Right. Like if I'd never been to a strip club before, if I like try to think about the first time that I ever went, like how I learned what to do or not do was by looking, watching other people i didn't read before although yeah yeah i mean that would have been well yeah went like early i wasn't as online then as as i am now right when i probably went to a strip club when i was 18 in quebec somewhere sure um but yeah so you know I, i don't think that there's a huge demand but i think that it's depending on the the populations that people work with it's something that could uh, come up. And I just thought it was like an interesting, like kind of intersection, but again, the majority of people aren't going to be doing or thinking about or feel comfortable working in these like varsity level um, spaces. So, and same with like the, like kind of thinking about like kink and, and BDSM and fetish support and like those sorts of things. Um, I sent you another like article that I think was just really interesting. It's like article by, uh, author's Cambridge and it's called a rights support to supporting the sexual fetish of a man with learning disability. Mm. And it basically is, I think like a good article to understand how attempts to stop a behavior that's not dangerous to anybody else. And isn't like, is not generally found to be very helpful. And so what this article showed was that the person in this article wanted access to diapers. Um, and they, so by trying to sort of stop, just stop that, um, that, wasn't effective at decreasing his attempts to try to access them. And, but what worked was educating staff. So support staff around how to, to support this interest or fetish that he had in a supportive um, way and allowed him some privacy, those sorts, the the client in this case, some privacy. So I think it's a good example of um, yeah, not allowing people to explore some of these things is mm. is more likely to cause to cause harm. There's obviously examples of of interests that could potentially cause harm when they're involving other people and and those sorts of things. Or anything obviously involving children is you know that that's dangerous in in an in an on another level, mm. um, which is like I don't know whatever is above our city. That's what that is. So, <laughs> like like what what even I kind of get a bit of an idea of what. BDSM is, um, um, and that seems to be that's not just a one thing. That seems to be like mm-hmm. a range of activities. Um, mm-hmm. um, uh, um, well, maybe first remind 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 me what BDSM stands for. 
Yeah. So people usually, there's kind of like a bondage, dominance, and sadomasochism is sometimes yes. what people say. Um, but also people use the S to stand for submission. So mm. bondage, dominance, submission, um, and, and masochism. So that's generally what people will, will use the BDSM to stand for. Mm. But I would, I would, you know, I'll, I'll it's like akin to like an umbrella term basically and a bunch mm-hmm. of different things can fall underneath there. And what, you know, some people think of as sort of like BDSM or kinky behavior could be something like as simple, I guess, as like, you know, spanking during sexual contact sure. all the way up to something like, um, you know, being like a mummification kink where somebody's like completely kind of like wrapped up or wow. um, in, and, you know, just, has yeah like mummification it is what it is what it sounds like mummification right their whole body sort of like um contained within like some sort of material um or and like kind of anything in between so there's a lot of sort of stuff in there but and kink is a is a complicated area and i would say like people definitely like um it's yeah it's a whole sort of specialization even within sort of um, you know, like, like sex therapy or counseling and like being like a kink, um, aware kink informed sort of like therapist, like that sort of thing is like us, even like a sub specialization. So mm. we're really getting into the weeds of like scope of practice versus scope of competence, totally. um, for folks. And it, you know, so I would say that it's definitely something that, um, there's a big, like a lot of misunderstanding around kink and, um, and fetish and what, and what that means. A lot of people mistakenly think that it comes from, it's like a, a trauma response. So people, um, assume that if somebody has a kink, it's, it's the result of trauma. Mm. Um, we're actually, you know, a lot of people that have trauma actually find kink and, and BDSM practices to be really, um, therapeutic because they, they take the power and control back from a situation that was previously out of their control is now in their control. I would say like non kinky people have a lot to learn from kinky or the BDSM community around right their practices around consent and being really explicit about what is okay and is not okay. Also a reason I think why a lot of autistic and neurodivergent people really, um, fit into that community because it does have a lot of rules. It's very explicit. Mm. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do. It's talked about before. And then you go and do it. Whereas just like every day, sort of what people would call like vanilla sexual contact, you know, you're expected to just sort of like know what the other person wants and doesn't want. And we don't do a good job of talking about what people want before. So there's some links there. There's a bit of, there's a tiny bit of emerging research around overlaps between autistic people and, and, and elements of BDSM. There's a, a, an article from 2017 that people can, can probably find online um, that links autism and paraphilias, but it's really framed really negatively in a really like harmful way. So that articles by Stottle, um, at all. It's interesting to think about, but if you don't have the lens of understand of an understanding of kink and BDSM, reading that article might lead you to believe that that's problematic when it really shouldn't uh, be viewed as such. It's sort of framed as like something that should be stopped. Right. Um, there's a newer article, Boucher and Geither 2018, that found some correlations. That's a, a lot more positive. Mm. Um, yeah. So if you don't, I guess the kind of like summary point, like I was saying before, if somebody's doing something and your first instinct is to stop it because you're coming from a place of not really understanding what's going on. Um, and it's not dangerous to anybody else. It's worth doing some sort of like research into like, 
is this something that this person could actually be supported to do? Is this kind of like a kink that exists in the general population? Mm. I mean, I don't want to make like any hundred percent guarantees, but I assure you if somebody's doing it somewhere, somebody else has done right. it somewhere. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Yeah. Is, is kink just sort of a construct? Is kink just basically like this isn't, this isn't things that a lot of people talk about. So it's called a kink, even though it, it's just another practice or is there something about it that makes it a kink versus not a kink? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I think that, um, no. And I think that the term, like term, there's not really a good operational definition yeah. if you want to make yeah, it behavioral yeah, yeah, yeah. or an agreed upon definition. Right. And what somebody says, you know, if somebody says like, oh, like I'm kinky, then that means like, oh, they're, you know, they're kind of into like spanking. And then when somebody else says it, it means something entirely different. Right. So I think that that term is, doesn't have like a really solid definition. Um, I would say like, some people might call it like sexual practices that are outside of the norm. But again, what is that? And, and as people are getting more comfortable talking about sexuality and sexual expression, people are getting more comfortable in saying that they're interested in some of these things. And I think we'll sort of realize over time that like, these Mm. are just, this just a spectrum of sexual expression. And, and um, you know, some people are into certain things like more than more than others. And for some people it's not, some of these things also that people would consider like fetishes or paraphilias aren't actually, um, aren't, aren't sexual. There is an important distinction between like a kink and a paraphilia or if, and there's also like fetishistic disorder, which is still in the DSM, uh, the diagnostic Mm. statistical manual. Um, and so people could look at like what the criteria is for that, but essentially to be considered a disorder, the distress that a person is experiencing because they have this, um, this thing that they're interested in needs to be internal and not because determined to be like, obviously with the psychiatrist or psychologist sort of like assessment, not based on like the input of other people around them. Right. Mm -hmm. So like I have a foot fetish, but it's because other people around me are telling me that that's dirty and disgusting and I'm gross. That's causing me distress. That's not, that doesn't meet the classification Mm -hmm. of paraphilic disorder because that distress is coming from external forces, not internal forces. Um, yeah. So there's some, at least there's that, you know, yeah, because <laughs> I've I've read I've read about sort of I've read about I've I've seen that as a disorder and I've been like that's like I, that seems a bit archaic you know it's sort of mm. like it's sort of like um, you know um, I, I've there's some older books on you know things like uh, you know sex addiction which I've heard Barb say many a times it's not a thing um, <laughs> that, <laughs> um, that's a good Barb impression yep um, yeah. um, 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 and uh, but but referring to things like you know uh, uh, cross-dressing as mm-hmm. as as a as sort of a you know a bad thing and and a, you know, a clinically problematic thing and, yeah. and so so you know, I, 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 I worry when I see things like this still being called disorders, but it sounds like maybe there's, there's more to it than just sort of engaging in an act. Yeah. And I mean, I think like, you know, I maybe kind of full circle to like the beginning of the conversation around just like some of the influences of, of external forces, right. Where like the medicalization of, of humanity and the, and the DSM, right. Like homosexuality was considered a psychiatric disorder, um, being transgender, a psychiatric disorder for men, like until very recently. Right. Like, um, and so 
those are still holdovers. And so as we're recognizing that these are in fact just differences in the hum in human expression and human sexuality, yes. those things are being taken out of those kinds of manuals, which still unfortunately inform a lot of people's um opinions and also inform a lot of people's access to resources. Um and so, you know, I think we the understanding of what sexuality is has really come from this sort of like colonial white heteros normative patriarchal sort of framework of what Absolutely. existence should look like yep. and anything outside of that has been classed as deviant and but we're sort of slowly too slowly understanding that that's not true right. and so those things are being you know non-medicalized and just being seen as sort of like part of the spectrum of what makes humans wonderful mm -hmm. and what about just just another term again these are all some of these are new but Paraphilia. What, what, what's what's a paraphilia? Because I, when, I, when I see that term, I won't lie, uh, a, a bias comes to me, and uh, because I, I I associate it with the only other word I've ever known that ends with philia, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, right? Uh, and, yeah. And, and and so it's a pedophilia, and 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 my guess is pedophilia is probably a paraphilia, uh, but mm. not not all all paraphilias. Yeah, I mean, essentially, it's like just like a like a sexual interest, fantasy behavior or something like that. That's just sort of like pretty like intense and and, you know, the like medical definition would be like intense and persistent mm. um, and that are sort of like atypical. But again, like what like mean? what does that yep. mean? Right. So um, in like sexual deviance or sexual perversion or like other like older terms that people m might like use for some of those or uh, paraphilia versus paraphilic disorder again is like an important difference. Um, and they're so, yeah, it's just something usually paraphilia is when I come across it, or if I use the term, it's about uh, like an ob like objects in particular. So, or a part of an object. So like a shoe fetish or like a foot fetish paraphilia and fetish can be like, like inter okay. be like, uh, like used interchangeably almost. Um, yeah, but again, like the difference between a paraphilia and a paraphilic disorder, again, is back to that. Now we're back to like the medicalization and, and all of those sorts, those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, just like a sexual attraction that's deemed to be sort of like outside of the norm. But I would just sort of just say like, well, what is like, what is that? What does that mean? Because <laughs> for a long time, that just meant like outside of a married heterosexual relationship where sex happened for procreation and everything mm. else outside of that bubble was was potentially paraphilic but now i think we're recognizing that that's not true and a lot of these things are you know they're not harmful so um, pedophilia again is something where we're thinking about that would be harmful to children but there are people who might say that they are and this is you know this is again super varsity but people that are that say that they are pet non-offending pedophiles um that mm. they have like an attraction to minors it causes them a great deal of distress because it is not something that they want to act on and they need help and resources and support to be able to live a safe fulfilling life I and mean, there's very few people that are willing to do that level of work with people that have identified that i think people make the mistake of colloquially using pedophile and child abuser interchangeably, whereas mm. the vast majority of people who commit sexual offenses against children are not pedophiles. They're not attracted to children. They're attracted to an abuse of power oh, wow. and they take advantage of children because they're easy targets to, and have like a sexual power over somebody else or a sexual ownership mm. over somebody else that doesn't have the capacity to say 
know in the same way that an adult would. So, um, yeah, <laughs> that's a big, big topic. Um, Nicholas has a, has a presentation coming up. I mean, you know, this will probably be released after, but it'll be available as part of that snaba that you should have yeah, him on yeah, to, yeah. to talk about that Definitely. the difference between um a pedophile and um and a and a child abuser and the, those sorts of designations yeah. but and and i think that that's something that comes up in my work where people and and this term nicholas uses as well is like mistaken pedophilia so i'll work with people and they'll say like well he's a attra- you know he or she or whatever is attracted to children but like really like they're not sexually attracted to children they just have interests that are the same as children their play yes. is the same as children or their social yes. level is the same as children sometimes yes. it's not sexual but kids also like won't say no in the same way and so if you've if somebody's learned that like you touch somebody and they say no, that you stop and that's a boundary, but they are still are just kind of like interested in exploring in a non-sexual way, interactions yep. with other people. Kids are much less likely to say no in a way that it registers the same for people. And so there's a lot of this uh, understanding that there's this mistaken um, mm-hmm. um, pedophilia that, that happens in disabled populations. I think that needs more investigation. Um, there's some research, uh, like recently I'd have to look up the citation for you that looked at, um, people with disabilities offending, um, that they're like people with disabilities are more likely to be victims of sexual violence, but also can potentially statistics are the research is not good quality. So Mm -hmm. we don't really know, but might be more likely to also be offenders, but probably that's because of lack of access to sexual health education. Um, and they're not, but they're not more likely to offend against children. So some people think like, Oh, people with disabilities are going to be more likely to offend against children, but that's probably not the case. Yeah. Um, so like super complex, but. Well, I see like a lot lot of assumptions being made. Like I've worked with a lot of folks that are just like you said, they're, they're fascinated by kids in a playground. Like it's Mm -hmm. just a lot of things moving a lot of, there's a lot of funky equipment in there that you would never see anywhere else. There's Mm -hmm. lots of, you know, whether it's going down slides, lots of sounds they're making. And I've worked with many a folk that stand there and stare at children in playgrounds, but Mm -hmm. I know that, 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 you know, either a, Mm -hmm. they just want to go play too. um, um, Or B, you know, they just are just fascinated by what they're seeing, but you know, society has taught us that adults staring at people in a playground are pedophiles. Right. Yeah. 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 And I think that that's like, I mean, uh, as an advertisement for like put in adult playgrounds, but also like people (laughs) like those can be like, there's very few places that adults can get that level of like sensory experience. So like, well, I've worked with lots of adults that love like swinging and they'll go and they'll hang out at the park. And the mistaken pedophilia isn't necessarily on the part of the support people that are with that person that know them. It's on, it's like you said, it's on the part, the part of people who are like, why is there an adult at the playground with kids? And it's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, we've kind of learned that that's weird or like kids are told that that's the kind of person that you need to look out for because they're there to potentially cause you harm. Um, I mean, this is another like shout out for like not teaching stranger danger, but because the, you know, the chances that someone's going to be victimized by a stranger is actually quite low. It's only 7% of cases of sexual abuse or assault against children anyway, that are by a stranger. Um, And then most of the time it's an acquaintance or a family member. So I tell people to not teach stranger danger. We need to teach like 
tricky behavior or unsafe behavior, not unsafe people. Yes. Um, because you know, your, your members of your immediate family can do. The third secret word is kink. You can engage in unsafe behavior. Oh yeah. No, so important. So, so important. Yeah. Episode I just released today was all about, uh, uh, family and and inter interpersonal and, and, and intimate partner violence and kind mm. of all the things kind of associated with that. So yeah, no, mm-hmm. I, yeah, it's it's true. I mean, it's uh, it is interesting. Don't talk to strangers, but it's so rare in the news today to hear about the van pulling up, you know, with candy for someone mm-hmm. doing doing the luring. It, it it's still there, mm-hmm. but it's uh, you know, it it's much more like you said. Uh, the, the the family members doing abuse. I definitely want to talk to Nicholas about some of those things. That's cool that he that he yeah. talks about those things because that's mm-hmm. you know I think I think because a big part of the, these conversations and, and hopefully part of this podcast for folks isn't you know, necessarily to teach you how to do this with your clients, but just to teach you that these things exist um, mm-hmm. and 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 that you know I, I really liked your point that if you see someone doing something strange. Google it first because it might not be as strange as you think it is. You know, just yeah. just just as just as you know, it's strange to you know really love planting lupins in your garden and want to fill your entire yard with lupins and nothing else. But you'll go online, you'll find out there's there's a massive community of of, of hardcore lupiners or something. Yes, like that, you know? and that's yes. not that's not that weird. But to anyone else, it's like, why does he have so many lupins? You know, is he a Monty <laughs> Python fan or something? What's going on here? Uh, so. <laughs> Maybe not lupins, but I just felt I see lupins out the window in our garden. Yeah, perfect. That's a pretty yeah. That's a perfect example of just like if yeah, th- stuff's only weird or strange because you didn't know that it existed before. Yeah, and yeah. community is like such a valuable thing, right? So yeah. you're like lupin gardener group on social media is totally. like is a really valuable source of community. And yeah. the uh, you know ABDL since we're adult baby diaper lovers community online can be very valuable source of community for people who otherwise think that they're alone in having this interest. So, yeah. Well, I think also just maybe for that, there's things like that. If if folks kind of have that ability to sort of navigate internet and, 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 and and read things and and do those sorts of things, you know, folks can learn a lot. Folks are probably maybe more enticed to learn a lot more about sort of those kinks and those, those things from like-minded folks that are practicing and, mm-hmm. you know, versus maybe going to a professional or, or a support staff or whatever, you just send yeah. someone to the ABDL website. Well, go read this and then tell me if you're still, you know, you mm-hmm. still have questions or you still need help. Cause you're right. There are, there are the internal supports are off, you know, peer support, we always talk about peer, peer support, support schools, you know, well, mm-hmm. it's, the same, it's the same in sort of any other context. I think like-minded folks are more likely to sort of, yeah. And I think the other thing for that I always say for like behavior analysts is another just like bit to behavior speak it a, a bit is that like I think that we're always we're looking for like another behavior analyst with with expertise in a specific yes. area. And we and we have to remember that there are experts that exist in like other fields. Absolutely. So like if you're you know, if you're gonna constantly be looking for a a a behavior analyst with expertise, like nowhere in the ethical code does it say that the expert or the consultation that you do has to be with another behavior analyst. Mm-hmm. You just have to seek consultation. So that consultation could be with like a stripper that works at your local strip club that your client yeah. wants said that they want to go to that stripper is the expert on what to do and not do at that club. So hire, pay them. <laughs> or similarly, I mean, you're probably one of only a couple certainly that I know of in our province that are behavior analysts and the certified and have that certified 
sexual health educator certification. But there are mm-hmm. lots of people with the certified sexual health educator certification that are BCPAs. So yeah. if, if land is too busy, you can still <laughs> find folks that are that are doing this work. You know, they just may not know as much about, you know, you know, ABA, but that's not a big deal. You already know about ABA. You're a BCPA. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, we've talked very little today about ABA. You know, um, there's been some operational definition references, you know, a little visual supports and task analyses and whatnot. But these are all basic stuff for most of the folks listening out there. It's all that other content that um, mm-hmm. that you need that someone, someone to have that expertise in. Yeah. And I usually tell people, too, that like the other like are are remembering about behavior and what we know about behavior and learning and teaching tends to just like fall out of the back of people's heads when it has something to do with sexuality. Yep. So you know how to teach, you know, what's good teaching, you know, what's good support, and you just might need the the visuals or some of those things yep. from somebody like me, but you can probably do it. There's some cases where I would say like, you probably shouldn't like some of the mm-hmm. varsity stuff, right? Yep. But some of the basic stuff, I think people can definitely um, like do, uh, you know, with, some basic consultation mm-hmm. around just making sure that they're kind of teaching the right thing and and those sorts of things. And the same way that like you should get consultation from a speech language pathologist around whether or not this is a developmentally yeah. appropriate speech sound word, sentence structure, syntax, whatever you could get that information from a sexual health educator. Is this an age appropriate behavior for somebody this age to be engaging in? Right. So like same sort of consultation. Yeah. Well, yeah. and you can also get, all that information by taking one or any of these amazing courses that are out there. Um, <laughs> yeah. So maybe we'll finish. You, 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 we, we, we sprinkled throughout the episode with some shameless plugs. Let's finish <laughs> off with a big shameless plug. Where can folks uh, find all the cool stuff you're doing and, and, and learn more about, uh, you know, sexuality, whether through direct consultation or through, you know, call, you know, resources and courses. Yeah. Um, well, people can find me on my website, which is positiveconnections.ca resources. I've got some there for purchase, but there's also a contact form people can use to get in touch with me. Um, in Instagram is also a good place, um, which is at positive connections. And then I also have a link tree. That's just slash land of Fox, where I have some of the links to some of the webinars and things like that, that I have that are permanently available in different places. Um, and so that's the easiest way. Unfortunately, like my website development and updating skills are not sure. super strong. So I got to make a tab on my website. that's like, follow this link to get access to this, to this resource. But um, most of those are like saved in highlights on my, my Instagram and things like that. Um, yeah. I'm part of the SNABA empowered certified behavioral sexology um, program as one of the supervisors. And I've got a lot of content available for purchase with them as awesome. well. Um, that's all. Yeah. I don't know if I have much else coming up. Um, yeah. Fun. Well, and uh, glad I had you back. Always fun. Super fun. Thanks for coming yeah. on. Yeah. Thanks, Ben.